Hi, I'm Dr. Ariella Marshall. I'm an associate professor of medicine and hematology. And Femtech to me is doctors, scientists, and innovators coming together to collaborate on optimizing women's blood health across the reproductive life cycle. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, brought to you by Fem Health Insights, the leaders in women's health, market research, and consulting. In this show, we have meaningful and provocative conversations with Fem Health experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and I need to ask you a question. Have you registered for the Revitalize Summit yet? It's a one-day virtual summit on Wednesday, June 28th, where we will discuss the role of government in women's health. In particular, we will discuss clinical trial participation and diversification of those participants, reimbursement strategies, industry partnerships, and alternative funding mechanisms for FEM health innovations. Whether you're a Femtech end user, a Femtech founder, or seeking a job in Femtech, this event is for you. We have really incredible speakers lined up, like the head of neuroscience at Johnson & Johnson and the former FDA commissioner, to speak on the COVID-19 clinical trials uh, for the vaccine. Register at Femtech Focus or FemHealthInsights.com and use promo code PODCAST, because I love you, Fem fans, and that'll bring your ticket to only $15. I cannot wait to see you all there. Alrighty. In today's episode, I interviewed Dr. Ariella Marshall, a hematologist specializing in disorders of thrombosis and hemostasis, in everyday terms, bleeding and clotting, specifically in women. Dr. Marshall is a graduate of Harvard Medical School and currently the director of women's thrombosis and hemostasis at University of Pennsylvania. She has particular interest in gender equity for patients as well as physicians. In this interview, we discuss the role of estrogen in blood clots, how blood thinners actually work, and disorders of thrombosis and hemostasis throughout a woman's life. This is a great opportunity to learn more about blood conditions affecting women and how blood disorders or events can influence what type of contraception or medications females can take. Learn more by connecting with Dr. Marshall on LinkedIn. We've dropped her uh, LinkedIn profile in the show notes. I'm sure she'd love to hear from you and enjoy the episode. Hi, Dr. Marshall. Welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. Thanks so much for having me. It's so great to have you. Very astute. You have a red shirt on. Today, we're going to talk about blood. Is blood even red? It is, in fact. So I actually thought about that. I have a red shirt. I have a red chair behind me. So yeah. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah. I just, that literally just dawned on me that I remember being a kid and like, I don't know why the kid said like your blood's actually blue because that's what it looks like in your vein. But as soon as it hits oxygen, like that doesn't make any sense. Who said that? Right. That's all a lie. I can see it. I can see it though. The <laughs> oxygenated blood is red. If things aren't going so well, it looks darker. So yeah. All right. All right. Fair enough then. Okay. Kids in high school. Thanks for the, for the rumors only half true. Um, well let's, uh, before we dive into hematology, which I'm so excited to have on the show, cause I'm like, 
what else is there to know besides, you know, what, what does blood got to do with anything? And apparently a lot, especially for females. Um, but before we get into that, we'd love to learn a little bit more about our guests. So please uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, your background, and, um, you know, how you got to working in in blood with women. <laughs> Absolutely. So I would say that even before I went into medicine, I've always been a huge advocate for women's rights. You know, I was Born in Berkeley, California to a mom who was, you know, an activist in the 60s. So women's rights and women's health have always been really important to me. Um, Don't have any doctors in my family. And so like many people who go into medicine without, you know, prior experience or exposure, I think you kind of follow the path of really good mentors. And so when I was exploring career choice, I had an amazing mentor who happened to be an oncologist or a cancer doctor. And so I went through all of my medical training, figuring, hey, I'm going to go into oncology. And I thought, hey, maybe I'll do breast cancer because that kind of fuses the oncology and the women's health. Um, but when I actually got to my clinical training and fellowship, I found that I really, really liked hematology, which is the study of blood. We can talk more about specifically what that means. Um, but I really like kind of the fast paced inpatient aspects of hematology. And I found like a great little niche where I could combine that interest in women's health uh, with thrombosis and hemostasis, which is my specific little segment of hematology that I'm uh, super excited to talk with you about. So I found that was really a good match kind of for my career interests, my personality. And yeah, that's how I got here. Oh my gosh. I would have never guessed that there was a certain personality type that met hematology. So I'm very (laughs) excited to learn more about that. Um, You just said a few words that I'm like, I don't even know what they are. So I'm going to assume my listeners don't, or at least some of them. So can you please give us the definitions of hematology, thrombosis, and hemostasis? Absolutely. So Hematology as a whole is basically blood, um, but that can mean anything from normal blood to when things go wrong, whether that be clotting or blood cancers or so. Hematology is anything and everything to do with blood, your blood system. Um, and then specific aspects of what I do. So I do what is grouped overall as benign or non-cancer hematology. And there's a whole group of colleagues I have who do specifically take care of patients with blood cancers. So things like leukemia or lymphoma. And so that's kind of a separate area oh, from leukemia and lymphoma are blood cancers considered blood cancers. Exactly. Exactly. And so the hematology umbrella is kind of blood cancers and blood non-cancers. And so what I do is blood non-cancers. But, you know, I still deal with what happens when things in the blood go wrong. And so Mm -hmm. what I do is called hemostasis and thrombosis, which is fancy words. um, But basically, hemostasis is the bleeding, you know, part of the blood system. So what happens when there's too much bleeding happening. So that can be either a bleeding disorder or some of the things we'll talk about that are normal for women, like periods. Um, and then thrombosis is the other side, uh, which is when there's too much clotting. So a thrombus is a blood clot. So basically bleeding and clotting. Got it. Seriously, I'm like, you know, people are like, oh, Dr. Barreto. I'm like, I'm not that kind of doctor. I know like that's a different kind of PhD doctor. So I really didn't even know these words. Um, 
So with that baseline here, do these things disproportionately affect females? And if so, in kind of what ways? Yeah. So, you know, there's different ways that bleeding and clotting can affect people, you know, of of either gender. Um, Naturally, women, you know, we have bleeding once a month during a certain period of our lives. So you could say that maybe bleeding disproportionately affects women in the (laughs) sense that we have periods. Um, There's some other conditions. So hemophilia, for example, um, as you know from genetics, um, is uh, is a trait that runs more in men uh, than women. So I think, you know, there's disproportionate representation based on specific um, disorders or conditions. But definitely, I would say we notice some of these conditions more in women because we have more conditions in which we can bleed. So whether that be periods or in childbirth. Um, so I, I think that, you know, regardless of the underlying disorder, um, it's important to kind of be aware of how it can affect women or men specifically due to what's going on in their lives otherwise. Really interesting. So I think what we'd like to do next is kind of break down a woman's stages of life and talk about her bleeding and clotting throughout those stages of life. And so first, let's talk about, um, you know, younger women. Um, What are some of the disorders of thrombosis or hemostasis, like bleeding and clotting in younger women that we should know about? It probably has to do with periods, I'm assuming, but you might (laughs) shock me and say there's some other bleeding thing that happens in no, I think you got it. I think that there's a theme running through and of all stages of a woman's life is that there's a really close connection between hormones and bleeding and clotting disorders. So the hormones that affect, you know, us at different periods of our life are basically, you know, starting to have periods, then going through pregnancy and then going through menopause. Um, but it's that theme underlying it of hormones interacting with the blood system. And so that can interact, you know, either in terms of bleeding or clotting. So in terms of kind of bleeding things, if a woman has a congenital or like an inherited bleeding condition um, that she has, you know, been passed down from the parents, one of the first times she might become aware of it is when she starts to have periods. So I would say that for kind of bleeding disorders that people are born with, it may be that, you know, a woman first notices it when she starts to have periods because that's the first time she would have had, you know, a reason uh, to bleed on a regular basis. Um, So I think those bleeding disorders are often diagnosed, you know, maybe even earlier in women men than men because women start having periods, you know, in their early teens and men may not have a hemostatic or a bleeding challenge until they say have a surgery maybe later on in their lives. So, you know, there are conditions like hemophilia that would be diagnosed at birth in men, but for some of the other bleeding disorders, women might actually, you know, be diagnosed before men because they're having periods and when periods are heavy, it's like, oh, you know, we should, we should look into that. Um, But I will also say, and maybe this is jumping ahead a little bit, but we see many women that are actually underdiagnosed because no one has actually asked them, Hey, are your periods heavy? And if somebody says no, it's like, well, let's ask a little bit more about that. Maybe it's normal for you, but maybe it actually is heavy. Um, And so I always ask patients, you know, and I say, how are your periods? And they say, well, they're fine. 
what do you mean by that? You know, and there are some specific questions that we can get at um, to see whether there's really heavy bleeding happening. I know some of your your other discussants on the podcast have talked about that. Um, but so, yeah, I think bleeding disorders often come to light in younger women when they're starting to have periods. Um, and then on the clotting side of things, the big thing is um, contraception. So I think when women are starting to have periods and starting to think about, you know, using a contraceptive, whether that be for preventing pregnancy or whether that be for many, many, many other things, um, as you know, so things like PCOS or endometriosis, there's lots of reasons Somebody can, you know, be taking a contraceptive. For um, me, it was ovarian cysts. You know, it exactly. Wasn't, I was thirteen. I was not sexually active, but I had cysts. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but those contraceptive, basically, you know, the standard ones often have estrogen in them, and estrogen is a risk for blood clotting. And so when prescribers, you know, whether that be a primary care doctor or an OBGYN, are thinking about prescribing a contraceptive. They should be thinking and asking women about potential other risk factors for blood clots, like, hey, have you ever had a clot? Are there clots that run in your family? Um, because we do know that there's some conditions that can interact with birth control that has estrogen and really increase the risk of clotting. What is a clot? That is a great question. Um, so a clot is basically a collection of blood cells that kind of clumps together and stops the normal flow of blood. So actually, you know, clots should be happening to some low degree, you know, in the body. That's a normal process. So if you cut yourself while shaving, you actually want the blood mm -hmm. to kind of clump up and cover up that injured area to stop the bleeding. So it's a natural process, but a true, you know, blood clot that becomes a problem is when there's too much blood that clumps up and, you know, kind of goes to excess and too many blood cells are sitting there and actually blocking the normal flow of blood. And that can lead to issues like pain and swelling. If it happens in the lung, it can lead to shortness of breath or chest pain. And if it happens in the brain, that's a stroke. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, clots can happen both in the arteries. Um, they can happen in the veins. Usually when we're talking about the estrogen risk and hereditary blood clotting conditions, we think of it more in the veins. So that would be like the veins in the legs. That's called the deep vein thrombosis or a DVT. Um, it can happen in the veins in the lungs. That's called a pulmonary embolism or a PE. And it can actually happen in the veins in the brain, which is separate than a stroke. Um, so the veins in the brain, there's cerebral venous clots. And then a stroke is actually when a clot happens in the artery in the brain. So lots of different places and names, but it's all the same of basically a clump of cells that's blocking the normal flow of blood. What's the difference between a vein and an artery? Another great question. Um, so it all has to do with kind of how the blood is flowing through the body. So you actually hit on this all the way back when you were talking about, you know, the, the high school kid that mentioned the arteries and the veins. Um, so an artery is the oxygenated blood that's being pumped from the heart to the body. So this blood that is very rich in oxygen, the heart is pumping it out to the organs to deliver oxygen. 
And once the organs take up that oxygen, the blood that is kind of depleted of oxygen is then returned um, back to, through the lungs where it picks up more oxygen, but it returns through the veins. They're kind of the pipes that it returns to and it goes through the lungs where it picks up the oxygen and then it goes back to the heart to get pumped out to the body again. I recalled that some at some lesson <laughs> in some of my <laughs> schooling that, uh, but I couldn't remember if it was artery or veins, but I remember now it's arteries are first. It's like the going out because it's alphabetical vein is the <laughs> second is V Excellent. comes back. Yeah. So it's coming back to me. It's coming back to me. Um, and what is a treatment for a blood clot? How do we, how do you, I mean, it sounds like, you know, pain or swelling or, you know, bruising potentially could like show you that, but how did, how does it get treated? Yeah. So some of that depends on where the clot happened. Um, a lot of the patients that I see with blood clots, it's more those ones that are in the veins. Um, and so usually the main treatment is to put somebody on a blood thinner. And I think there's a lot of misconception about this because people think, oh, the, the blood thinner is going to take away the blood clot. Unfortunately, that is not the case. The role of a blood thinner is to prevent the clot from getting any bigger and to prevent it from spreading to other areas of the body. But the body itself actually dissolves the clot once it happens. And that can take weeks, months. Sometimes it never fully dissolves. There's scarring in the vein where that happens. And that's why somebody who's had one blood clot is always going to be at higher risk of getting another blood clot because the anatomy never quite goes back to normal. Wow. I'm really honestly learning so much. <laughs> well, that's a good thing. <laughs> that's so good. I love learning. So it really makes me happy. Um, how do you visualize if the clot has gone away or not? Um, great, great question. And this is another one that there's a lot of misconception about. So in the hematology world, we actually don't. Um, so we have different kind of lengths of treatment with the blood thinner that we would recommend for different causes of the clot, mostly depending on whether or not it's reversible. But because we know every body is different in terms of if and how long it takes to dissolve the clot, there's really no way to visualize it and say, oh, this treatment was a success or it was a failure. So we'd really only re-image, and that would be with an ultrasound if it's of the legs or a CAT scan if it's of the lungs, we'd really only re-image if we're afraid that the clot is getting bigger despite the blood thinner. If we think there's some reason that the treatment isn't working and preventing it from getting bigger or spreading. But a lot of patients that I see want to know, hey, I, I just want to make sure the clot's gone. I'm like, well, I can never tell you that it's going to be gone for sure. You know, we could do another ultrasound, but if the clot's still there, it doesn't mean that the treatment failed. It just means maybe your body's taking a while to dissolve it. Or maybe it's not going to ever dissolve it completely, but it doesn't mean that things aren't working. How do you know how long the patient has to stay on blood thinners then for? Yeah. So the biggest thing that we look at is was the clot caused by a clear, what we call a provoking risk factor, like something that's going to be reversible or okay. is it Can caused you give me an example of that? Yeah. Yeah. So a big thing would be like a surgery. So say okay. somebody has a knee replacement and then gets a clot in their leg on the same side as the knee surgery happens. It's like, okay, that was definitely the risk factor. Assuming that the person who had the surgery is up and around and recovered and, 
you know, moving and walking and kind of back at their baseline, we say, okay, that's a clear risk factor and it's reversible. It's been reversed. So we're going to do three months of the blood thinner and then stop. Uh huh. The harder cases are when we can't figure out what causes. So clot kind of comes out of the blue. We do a lot of testing. Um, we can talk later about, you know, whether we should be doing like genetic testing or not, but say you do all the testing and you just can't figure out what caused the clot. In that case, we haven't really reversed anything. So the risk factor may still be there, whatever caused it. So unfortunately, we may need to recommend long-term or even lifelong blood thinners. Um, I will say that women are actually at lower risk of having a recurrent blood clot than men. Hmm. So there's some cases, you know, somebody's young and healthy um, and has, you know, not a smoker and has a relatively low BMI and we can do some lab testing. And so there's, there's these kind of, metrics that we can use. And in some cases, we can get away um, with stopping a blood thinner at a certain point Mm -hmm. um, because nobody wants to be on a blood thinner forever if they don't have to be. Uh, But in many cases, we unfortunately have to recommend kind of long-term blood thinner use. Um, (laughs) What is thinning of blood though? Like, well, how do you thin your, what are you thinning out? (laughs) Yeah. So the blood clot, system is the super complex. There's proteins or what we call factors that clot the blood. And then there's proteins or factors that stop the blood from clotting, you know, to make sure it's not getting kind of out of hand. And so most blood thinners work by inhibiting or stopping at least one of the factors that's trying to clot the blood. So, you know, you need several factors to you know, help this clotting cascade and you're kind of knocking at least one of them out. Um, so for example, Coumadin, which is one of the oldest blood thinners, is actually knocking out several of the different factors that are used to clot the blood. Um, some of the newer blood thinners like Eliquis or Zarelta, you may have seen these advertised on TV, they're actually just knocking out one of them, which is called factor 10. Um, but basically, blood thinners are stopping blood clots from happening by knocking out one of the factors that helps to clot the blood. All right. So it's not like a diluted blood. <laughs> like thinning <laughs> blood is the prevention of or decrease, decreasing uh, the activity. Of- you know, I, I do have like most patients who I have are like, yeah, now when I shave, it takes longer, you know, for things to heal up. If I so it is kind of thinning out the blood, uh, but it's basically yeah. just making it harder for the body to make new clots. And are women who are menstruating able to be on blood thinners? That is an excellent question. It's a it's a really important one. Um, so we all the time are talking about like risk factors for women getting blood clots, which is super important. Mm-hmm. But then sometimes we forget about, you know, if a woman does have a clot and we put her on a blood thinner, you know, a lot of doctors will then forget to start asking her about, hey, how are your periods now? My God, how are the hell could they forget? Like, <laughs> and it's, I literally have had women refer to me. It's like, oh, well, we want you to talk with her about the blood clot. And oh, she's also anemic. And it's like, well, it's probably she's anemic because she's on a blood thinner and her periods are super, super, super heavy. Do you not see any like uh, recommendations in these blood thinning drugs in terms of like, if a woman is, you know, of reproductive age, like we recommend, like, do you see any actual like sex specific or age specific recommendations um, with these medications? There are big ones related to pregnancy because we know you definitely can't use Coumadin during pregnancy, except for a couple of 
very specific situations we could talk about. Um, some of the other kind of the newer blood thinners, like the Eliquis and the Zarelto, we don't have safety data on them in pregnancy yet. So we recommend against using them in yeah. pregnancy. So unfortunately, in pregnancy, we really only have the injection blood thinners, which nobody is a fan of, obviously. Um, but I would say most of the recommendations are regarding pregnancy and breastfeeding, not wow. just kind of day-to-day like, hey, if you prescribe this, you should really follow up and see how a woman's period is going. And we actually do have some data that suggests that some of the blood thinners may lead to heavier periods than others. So if somebody comes to me and is on a specific drug that may be associated with a little bit heavier periods, I say, hey, one of our options is to switch to a similar drug, but maybe, you know, a little bit less likely to cause super heavy periods. Wow. Um, I know, by the way, listeners, we had like a set list of questions. I've totally thrown them away. I'm just asking yeah, my know. genuine, <laughs> curious questions. Yeah. Um, so what is the role in estrogen in terms of blood clots? Cause you said, you know, estrogen and birth control could potentially lead to blood clots. And now that we know some basic biology here, where does estrogen play? Yeah. So, and maybe I can talk about kind of that whole, you know, women lifetime spectrum with the hormones here, just yeah. condense it all at once. Go ahead. Yeah. So basically estrogen is increasing the levels of some of the factors that clot the blood and it's decreasing the level of some of the factors that help stop the blood from clotting excessively. So it's kind of like, you know, the car, the car is going and not only are you giving it more gas in the tank, but you're cutting the brakes as well. So the clotting system kind of proceeds, you know, without the brakes that it needs or with less of the brakes that it needs. And so if you combine that estrogen with other risk factors, you know, things like an inherited clotting disorder or a prior history of a blood clot or a family history of a blood clot or smoking or a high BMI, you know, these risk factors kind of all combine and really jack up the risk of getting a blood clot. And that, you know, when we're saying estrogen, that can happen with birth control pills, the ones with estrogen, it can happen in pregnancy for sure. It can happen with hormone replacement therapy. And the one that we don't talk enough about, but is becoming really much more common is assisted reproductive technologies like IVF. So anything that increases the estrogen is going to increase the risk of a blood clot. Is there like a biological reason why estrogen does that? Is that just, you know, I'm an evolutionary geneticist. I'm like, there's a reason for everything. So (laughs) absolutely, absolutely. So it is preparing the body for delivery. So what happens Uh in delivery? Women bleed. So the estrogen, as it goes up, is basically, you know, preparing the body for delivery and increasing the risk of those clotting factors to help prevent postpartum hemorrhage, which is the other side of things. And it's still a major killer in the world today, especially in developing countries. So postpartum hemorrhage is still a major problem. So the body definitely still needs that drive to prevent excessive blood loss during delivery. So that's probably why it's happening. Yeah. Um, I recently had a friend, she is a, uh, a femtech founder who had a baby and had hemorrhaging and she, it was, she had a terrible experience and she has some trauma from it and is, you know, like there was a lot of blood that she was like, I didn't know I could even lose that much. And, um, they did a, uh, like some kind of the woman put her arm up into her vagina and kind of scooped out anything left in her uterus to make sure nothing else was left in there. Like, 
kind of insane. And I mean, this, this woman is in California and as she is, you know, at a great medical system. Um, and yet that still happened. Right. Um, my understanding is that postpartum hemorrhaging, um, is when the placenta that's attached to the uterus kind of like rips the uterus a little bit, or can you kind of tell me a little bit about where, where's the hemorrhaging part? I thought it was just kind of the whole thing was bleeding, but it sounds like maybe it's more of an incident or I don't know. Do you tell me? <laughs> yeah. So, so there's a couple of causes of postpartum hemorrhage. I mean, one of, I mean, postpartum hemorrhage is just a fancy thing. There's way too much blood coming yeah. out of the vagina after delivery. Um, one of the major ones is uh, called uterine atony. And so that is a fancy way of saying like the uterus just isn't clamping down and contracting enough um, to stop the loss of blood after the delivery. So that is you know, probably, you know, what was, what was being referenced mm. there. Um, so uterine atony is the major cause of postpartum hemorrhage, but there are other things like if somebody has a bleeding disorder, you know, they're definitely going to be at risk for more blood loss. And that's not kind of just from one area. It's kind of everything in the placenta and around the vagina. Everything is just oozing after this, or especially if there's a C-section, the surgical mm. site can be, you know, oozing excessive blood. So it kind of depends um, on, you know, what that underlying cause and there's several of them. Yep. Uh, and then for periods, I'm just going to go on a limb here. Where's the blood coming from? Because, you know, admittedly, if I think as a teenager, I thought my uterus would just filled up with blood and then opened and poured it out. I don't think that's probably the case anymore, right? It's like sloughing <laughs> of the endometrial lining. So is the blood literally breaking of the blood vessels that is feeding the tissue that is that is falling off? Pretty much, yes. So as the menstrual cycle occurs every month, it's basically the uterus preparing itself for if the woman was to get pregnant. So it's trying to create this like nice, cushy, nourishing environment. And what feeds all of, you know, the nutrients into the tissues, it's actually the blood vessels. So there's these very thick, coily blood vessels that are kind of feeding up the lining, mm -hmm. you know, of the uterus preparing for pregnancy. And if pregnancy does not happen, then basically all of that kind of sloughs off. And so you do get, you know, the tissue and, you know, essentially the blood vessels that are supplying it kind of coil up and all of that is left off. And because it's very rich in blood, it looks like everything coming out is blood basically. Yeah. I, uh, I'm actually a, a writer for healthy women magazine and, um, the editor, I wrote menstrual effluent and she called me up and she was like, this is insane. I've been writing about women's health for decades. What is effluent? And I was like, oh, well, like I recently, I actually just learned it last year as well. I was doing a report on it and I learned that that's the word. And it's essentially because it's not just blood, right? It's tissue. It's potentially an unfertilized egg. It's, you know, like it's not just blood. And when I explained that to her, she was like, I mean, that makes so much sense. I like kind of knew that, but I've always just called it menstrual blood. Um, but there's a lot of other stuff in there um, that is super, super interesting. And then what is um, uh, like any bleeding or risk factors for menopausal women? You know, we're always talking about the fertile, the menstruating woman. What is that that female over 50? She's postmenopausal. Are there blood concerns that she needs to have? Yeah, I mean. And I think a major one is definitely hormone replacement therapy um, because, again, hormone replacement therapy is providing 
excess estrogen or maybe not excess, but it's providing back estrogen that the body does not have have anymore. And so just like with pregnancy or with a birth control pill, you know, providing exogenous or outside the body estrogen is going to increase the risk of clots. And it's also really important to know that the risk of clots naturally goes up in everybody with age. So kind of a young woman, maybe in her 20s, otherwise healthy risk is probably one in 10,000. As people age and go into their 60s, 70s, 80s, it's going to go up to one in 1,000 or even higher, like maybe as high as one in 100. And so if you're combining that natural increase in risk of clotting that happens with everybody as you age and then adding on that exogenous hormone use as well, probably the risk is, we know that for many women, the risk is going to be high, but that doesn't mean, you know, the doctor should be saying, no way, I'm not going to prescribe this. It's like, okay, let's take a look at what the other risk factors are there. And if there are not very many other risk factors, it's definitely something that can be considered. You know, I think all of these things, that's one thing that drives me crazy is that doctors get in their head that, oh, there's a risk of clotting and just say, no, you know, you can't have this hormone. You can't, you know, have this treatment. Um, And that's not the case. It's like, let's look at the whole picture. Let's look at the whole woman. Let's talk about, you know, what yeah. the other risk factors are or are not present. Because yeah. there's risks in taking Tylenol, right? There's risks in drinking exactly. a gallon of milk. There's risks exactly. in lots of things, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, doesn't mean that it's legit poisonous or you should never have it. It's like you doing it mindfully exactly. with questions I mean, about your period, maybe. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like <that should> be- <laughs> exactly. No, one like huge example, and I know we're going like way off time, but one huge example I have in what I do is that, you know, we talked about, we know that birth control pills are a risk for a clot. So what happens if a woman gets a clot while she's on birth control? The first thing the doctor says is stop the birth control wait a second, like a lot of times drives me crazy. The doctor never says like, hey, let's talk about this. Well, yes, you cannot take a birth control pill that has estrogen, but let's talk about what the safe other options are. So if that discussion never happens, a woman is often left thinking that she can't take any type of birth control. But what's actually a higher risk of clots yeah, than taking many other types of safe birth control, getting pregnant. And so this oh is just, God. it's driving me insane because there's plenty of safe options, that, including IUD that has levonorgestrel in it. That is not a risk factor for lots. And there's so many young women that I see that come in and says, yeah, I was told I can never take anything with hormones in it. And what people really mean is estrogen, levonorgestrel, IUD, super safe, super effective, not a risk for clots, really great option that I talk to people about all the time. But if somebody has just said you can never take hormones, that leads to so many misconceptions. Yes. Oh my goodness. I mean, oh, I, oh. do you have any other femtech public service announcements you'd like to make <laughs> in terms of, all right, so we have a list of ask about uh, women's periods and don't just say, oh, it's fine. Like really dive into like how many tampons or pads you're using. Um, if you have a blood clot, we're going to not just say you can't use hormones. We're going to come in with a, uh, potentially non-estrogen contraception suggestion. And uh, what, what are other, some other public service announcements that you're like, I've been dying to have a platform to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Big one I think was, we totally need more research in assisted reproductive technologies and IVF. So this process, and I've actually done IVF myself. So I've experienced like kind of as a patient and as a provider, but what are you doing? You're giving the body hormones to increase the own body's estrogen level. Like, 
hundreds of times the normal level. And that's, that's what you're trying to do to try to, you know, stimulate the uh, ovarian follicle growth. But what does that probably do really increase the risk of clotting? But we don't have really good studies on should we be putting women on prophylactic or low-dose blood thinners during this process unless they develop a very specific condition called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. But otherwise, we just don't have the data. But I would assume that, say, a woman has had a history of a blood clot in the past. Yeah, they should probably be on a lotus blood thinner if they're going through IVF or say there's a family history. Well, maybe you want to do some genetic testing to see if there's a risk there that's going to combine with that you know, rise in estrogen into the thousands when it's usually at like less than 100 or 200. So I think we need so much more research in assisted reproductive technology and and of how that relates to clotting risk and bleeding risk. Wow. That is super fascinating. Sadly, unsurprising, but um, yeah, yeah, that is it. I have a lot of questions. (laughs) I always have all the questions (laughs) because if you stop blood thinners, does it reverse its effect pretty immediately? Because I'm thinking about like, if you're taking all these hormones and then plus the blood thinners, you do get pregnant, but then we want you to be able to clot right during the childbirth. So is there, can you stop blood thinners and it pretty quickly kind of leaves the body? Yeah, absolutely. So the longest lasting one is Coumadin. That's probably in the system about five days, but okay. most of the other ones are, you know, a day or two max. Yeah, got it. Whew. Well, this has been so fascinating. I uh, cannot wait to go out into the world and tell everyone about blood because now I know all about it. Um, <laughs> uh, our last two questions are for all of our aspiring entrepreneurs, which we have many that listen in. What's an area in women's health and wellness that you think still needs innovating? Yeah, so I'll I'll give you two. Um, one is admittedly biased because of what we've been talking about, but I do think we need more kind of cross-disciplinary research. So it can't just be like, hey, look, let's look at IVF. It's like, let's look at IVF and the risk of blood clotting and bleeding or women's heart health, or let's look at women's heart health and the cardiovascular system with bleeding and clotting. You know, there's so many kind of interconnections that I think really need to, to be explored. And the other, you know, area I think really needs to be expanded on is access. So, I mean, I think it's great that all these technologies and tools and everything are coming out, but if the women that need them most can't get them, it's not really doing people good. And this is, you know, going to open up a whole nother can of worms, but these bleeding and clotting conditions, you know, some of the, you know, huge excess we see in morbidity and mortality are in black women, people from lower socioeconomic status, people who can't access healthcare. And so there's a lot of inequity. And I think, you know, expanding the access really um, is something of great importance. Are the blood thinners covered by insurance or do you, do you find that it's kind of a privilege to have these medications? It is variable. It's getting better. Um, I, Coumadin is pretty much covered by every insurance, um, but a lot of the other ones, there's there have been great difficulties. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as they become more and more widely used, insurance plans are covering them, but we'll definitely run into, you know, this insurance covers this oral blood thinner, yeah. not the other one. Well, that other insurance plan, you know, covers the opposite one and not, so it's just, you know, kind of a mess in some yeah. cases. So. And certainly I I doubt that they have some fine print that says, oh, but we will cover it for females because we know that this one is safe for menstruating women, right? I'm sure that that is not part of it, right? Never seen that. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
well, okay, put it on our list of goals, life goals we need to make changes for. And our last question is, what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? Yeah, and again, admittedly, it, a, a little bit uh, self-serving, but I really think we need more collaboration with doctors. I mean, so many, you know, amazing minds who are thinking about the care they want to um, be able to deliver to patients. And I think that close collaboration with doctors to understand what is their experience with patients and patient need um, and what are the questions that patients are going to be asking um, and just kind of that background medical knowledge is super important. So I'd love to see more collaborations. And I know you're an associate professor of medicine. Do you think that medical schools now are starting to have that sex conversation, you know, sex-based medicine? I think the drive is definitely there. You know, I think that they they want to, and, and definitely like the acknowledgement of sex as a biological variable is becoming much more common. Mm -hmm. Um, But that said, I definitely think we have a long way to go in terms of talking about things like fertility and reproductive health. And I never had any discussion of, hey, you know, what should we be talking to female patients about in terms of clotting and bleeding disorders or most of this other stuff when I was in medical school? By the way, y'all, she doesn't look that old. I don't know how old you are, but it's not like a long time ago that you were in medical school, right? So... That's your point of view. (laughs) (laughs) You have a great skincare regimen, whatever it is. You look very young. Uh, So, um, but yeah, like essentially, regardless, the fact that you're a blood doctor and like they didn't talk about the bleeding differences between females and males is just like... I, I don't know what it is. It's um it's it's dumb is what it is. Like I can't even give it um I try to give some you know benefit of the doubt, but it's like how how can that not be obvious, you know, bleeding. We menstruate, but you know, sounds like this- I would venture to guess that probably, you know, 20, 30 years ago, many people developing the curriculum were men and mm-hmm. remain men. So my personal view and a lot of the other work I do is advancing women in medicine and leadership. So I feel mm-hmm. or I hope that the more that happens, the more discussion we'll see. Oh, about these I topics. love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for your time today. You're amazing. I learned so much. Um, I, uh, I can't wait to go out into the world, talk about blood. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. This has been great. Thanks for listening to our interview with Dr. Ariella Marshall, assistant professor of hematology. Connect with her on LinkedIn. We've dropped her profile URL in the show notes. Okay, Fem fans, it's time to get engaged. If you love the show, then you'll definitely enjoy reading our weekly newsletter. Subscribe at femhealthinsights.com. While there, you can also join our virtual community, which has over 1,000 Femtech founders, investors, and advisors you can get insights and feedback from. We have an active events calendar, jobs board, and much more. Please give our social channels for Femtech Focus and Fem Health Insights a follow. The links are in the show notes. And don't forget, sharing is caring. Send this show to a friend or colleague and keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.